I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. Hey, Holly. Hey, Fiends. If you want to hear the business before this, go back to the other episode. Yeah. (laughs) One before. Yeah. Basically, please leave us reviews on Apple Podcasts because it makes us look younger. Go support us on Patreon because we need money. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And if you don't want to do either one of those things, just share anything we share on social media because then your friends can be our Fiends and we can all hang out together. (laughs) Is that all my announcements boiled down into one? Yeah, and I also don't have anything new this week, so we're okay (laughs) since it's the same day. Are you sure? (laughs) Yes. All right. Uh, So yeah, we're going to finish up with the terrible murder of Meredith Kircher and the subsequent witch hunt of Amanda Knox today. We're going to get more into her trial, prison time, and all that kind of stuff. And also, I know that it's pushed back a week, week, but next week, please, please, please mark on your calendar our episode on vaccinations. Because I feel it's going to be really important and informative. Yeah, I'm excited. So yeah, stay tuned. February 2nd, we're going to be talking vaccines. And um, so I guess that's it, yeah? Uh, Yeah, so I just wanted to a short recap. So we just left off. Again, you would have listened to part one, hopefully. Obviously. If you haven't, stop now and go listen to it. We're waiting. Welcome back. Welcome back. Yay. (laughs) Great. So as you just listened to. It was great. (laughs) uh, Amanda has just given a confession, not necessarily hers, but a confession. That's a very good way of putting it. And she is about to be incarcerated. So we're going to hear more about that. And we do remember after finishing this episode. Thank you for reminding me. I was kicking myself because I skipped a little piece in my notes when I was reading. Um, After Amanda gives her coerced confession. She says that Patrick Lumumba committed this crime. And so he is subsequently arrested and incarcerated for it. But a few weeks afterwards, I don't have the exact length of time because he didn't spend that long in prison. It was just a couple weeks. Yeah. He is subsequently released. So they only keep him until they find evidence and they they don't find his evidence anywhere. Like he's he wasn't ever in that apartment one time. Right, and he'd had a solid alibi that checked out. Yeah, he had a super solid alibi too, so he was released a couple weeks later, but he did speak out pretty, and I can't blame him for it, roughly against um, Amanda for saying that he was obviously guilty of a crime he didn't commit, Mm -hmm. but that didn't do her any favors either, you know. Correct. She was a horrible devil. Mm, She, she devil. Yes, (laughs) femme fatale. But yeah, I don't, I, there are a lot of people I blame in this case, He's not one of them. He no. went to jail for no reason because somebody said his name and he wasn't even involved. Right. So, okay, you're allowed to be mad. Great. Yeah. So with well, that little it. clarification and our, like, not at all awkward introduction, let's get on with the show. So then she gets goes into intake and she's in prison. And for the first little while, she's in solitary. She's in her own cell. She doesn't have any roommates. She sees doctors every single day in the morning, and every single day they're like, do you want sedatives? Do you want antidepressants? Every day they ask her that. 
And every day she says, no, I don't want to be in a haze at all. I want to be cognizant for everything that's happening. The only thing she can do is journal. So like a week or so in, they have given her a bunch of blood work. Totally inexplicable. You can, I, I can't tell you why they gave her blood work. They just did. Right. And they say, oh, um, Amanda, we've discovered that you're HIV positive. <sighs> She's not... It's not HIV positive. It turns out that the prosecution in Italy can do whatever they want to influence, like, a case. So not only did they have every time Amanda spoke bugged, so at this point her parents are in Perugia, and she meets with them once a week. It's bugged every time. Every single conversation she has with her parents is recorded. Mm-hmm. And they can say things like this. They can just tell her that. It was the prosecution that wanted to see what that made her do if it made her more desperate because she thought she was dying and she would admit to doing something else. Because now they've commuted this story for a version that they like even more, which is that she actually committed this crime. Mm -hmm. And then her prison diary after she gets the HIV scare gets leaked. And she had, after they told her she had HIV, she had sat down and listed everyone she had sex with because that's what you're told to do in this country. Because then you have to call them all and tell them they need to get tested. Right. But then that got out to the public. And they're like, oh, she's just listing her lovers while she's in jail, just talking about all the sex she had. What a crazy sex whore. Hmm. And this reporter guy is interesting when he talks about it because he's saying, like, really vile things about her. But he's just like, this was news. It was great. We got her diary. And I found it very interesting that they, the documentary, like, makers said, like, how did you get her diary? And he was like, I don't ever reveal my sources. And like, don't you feel bad about that? And he's like, huh? And then just keeps going. So but then, he clearly just got it from the police. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. He absolutely <laughs> got it from the police. Yeah. <laughs> so then our friend, the prosecutor, is like, I'm going to find the murder weapon. Just watch me. And he goes to inspect Raffaele's apartment. And he goes, I see a knife. And this knife looks like it's the same as the one that committed the crime. This is the murder weapon. There was no indication it was in a drawer in Raffaele's house. He just decides that it's the murder weapon, sends it in for DNA profiling, and they're like, well, we found Amanda's DNA on the handle and Meredith's DNA on the blade. Slam dunk for the prosecution. Well, first of all, Amanda was in the apartment all the fucking time, and you shed DNA like nothing. So she was, and they tell her this while she's in jail. They're like, well, you should, you obviously did this. Your handprint, your, your DNA is on the knife. And so is Meredith. And she's like mind blown. She does, doesn't understand. She's like, I don't, how, how could it possibly get there? I didn't, where did it, it was in Raffaele's house. And then it was also in our house. And then it also came back. Like, what, what does this mean? They're like, well, you know, it means that you definitely killed her. The forensic people also say, well, uh, we think this must be, a, must have been done by three people. So then it's commuted to Raffaele and Amanda are there. And it's a sex game. I don't. Yeah, it's it's pretty nuts. Now, there's also a lot of video of the forensics department handling this evidence. Right. And they wear the same gloves the whole time. And they touch everything. And they rarely change their booties. They don't change anything. Yeah. And they had lots of different investigators rifling through all the clothes. And at one point, they find... Meredith's bra clasp. Right. Because they had, her bra had apparently been cut off. It was on the floor next to her. She's naked. And when they find it, it's swept under a carpet. So that's how much it had been shuffled around, that it was like under everything. And then the prosecutor sends this bra clasp to be analyzed as well. And they find Raffaele's DNA on it, Amanda's DNA on it, 
and Meredith's DNA on it, which, of course, eventually would make sense because they touched a bunch of things that belonged to all three of them, and then they touched Mm -hmm. this thing. But prosecutor goes on to say, well, because they found Raffaele's DNA, like, underneath the metal of the clasp or something, and they're like, well, if he undid her bra a certain way, he would have only touched there. Yeah. One of the detectives— Magic fingers. Yeah, one of the detectives demonstrates this with her own bra in the courtroom. She must have practiced that for, like— Oh, yeah. She's like, I can do this. Yeah. (laughs) And she comes in. She's so cocky. She's like, hey, guys, my bra's clearly bigger than hers, but, like— Oh, dear. Yeah, it's really rough. So they really, like, because there's so much national media coverage on this case, and because they've said this is what's happening, they just, like, triple down on this theory. They just have to push it. It has to be what happened because they have to be right. So then— Right at this point, we see the forensic evidence is starting to come in, right? We're starting to get tests from the DNA, from the like DNA stuff. The other thing they find out is that there is DNA profiles from another man all over everything. And that his semen was found on Meredith. And this man's name was Rudy, how do we pronounce Gied. it? Rudy Geed. Now remember Rudy? They met him at a party late at night once. He said he liked them. Yeah. That's all we know about Rudy so far. And we're going to get to him in one second. So the police say, like, they want to know, they want to know, like, what's this guy's deal? Doesn't fit our narrative, but we'll we'll work him in. It's fine. So they have one of his friends Skype with him, and they record it. And when he speaks to his friends, he says that he met Meredith and went to her house that night. But they didn't have sex because she didn't have a condom. Then he had to take a shit. So he went to the bathroom. <laughs> While he was taking this shit, he heard a big struggle coming from the other room. So after he finished, he couldn't flush. There was too much going on. He walked out to see a man attacking Meredith, blood everywhere, and then the man ran away (laughs) out the front door. He saw Meredith dead on the floor, got scared, and left. Now, there are reports that he was, like, in a club that night, and he was just trying to, like, not think of the trauma that he endured and then, of course, he fled the country two days later, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't look suspicious at all. But people believe what they want to believe. And he says in this initial interview, quote, Amanda had nothing to do with this. She wasn't there. Right. That's his, the initial Skype call. And his DNA is all over the house. And all this is happening. So, like, before we get into, like, what happened to Rudy because of, like, how clearly guilty he is. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about this other player in our story? Sure. So my following info comes from injusticeinperugia.org, yes. themurderofmeredithkutcher.com, Raphael Celestio, org, <laughs> and the book A Fatal Gift of Beauty, The Trials of Amanda Knox by Nina Burley. A Fatal Gift of Beauty? Yes. That's a dramatic one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Rudy Geed was born on December 26, 1985, mm-hmm. in a little town of Agu, Agu, Ago, on the um, Ivory Coast of Africa. It was a French-speaking area. His parents were Roger Geed and a mother with no name. Oh, no, mother no name. Yeah, but she doesn't seem very motherly, so, like, she's not really in the picture. Like, okay. And he ends it up, I think, at, like, 12 years old. He was just like, I'm done talking to you. Also. Okay. So they were a part of a Christian tribe there. It was like a Christian Muslim area. Okay. At five years old, Rudy moves to Perugia, Italy with his father. His father was not very present. 
Rudy's teacher, Ivana Tiberi, noticed his neglect and looked into the matter further. She organized supervision for Rudy with help from other teachers and parents who took turns caring for him after school and before his father got home from work. Rudy became very close with the Tiberi family and their son, Gabriel, who was 10 years older than him and still thinks of Rudy as a little brother. He describes Rudy at this point as polite, not one to express anger, melancholic, and nonviolent. Rudy was well taken care of until his father was home. Neighbors remember Rudy being locked out of his house often and roaming the streets of Perugia late at night. Rudy has said that his father was physically and verbally abusive towards him. And when he does get brought into uh, jail or even just that questioning area, (laughs) yeah, he, um, he says that his father isn't allowed to even like come in to like see him. That's what they do. Yeah. They no, no, no. The Rudy, Rudy was just like, he requested that oh. his father cannot come. Oh, oh, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, despite having a shitty father, Rudy had plenty of kind fatherly figures in his life. One was a priest that officiated his first communion. So that's how he met him. And then a, uh, several basketball coaches over the years. Apparently, Rudy was, like, pretty good at basketball. Well, they say they played basketball with him. Yeah. That's how they knew him. In 2004, at about the age of 16, Rudy was enrolled in a vocational high school for hotel industry and but stopped going to classes due to, like, unhappiness at home. He seemed to, like, definitely want to be involved in, like, a restaurant or club okay. or hotel. That, like, seemed to interest him the most. Ivana Tiberia saw him struggling again and took him in. She introduced him to Paolo Barbini. There's a lot of Palos in these stories. Mm-mm. Of Perugia's semi-pro basketball team, and Rudy began playing. So now he's playing like semi-pro at like 16. Wow, okay. He's a bright future at this point. While playing ball, Rudy becomes friends with the son of a wealthy entrepreneur, Paolo Caporali. Uh, Caporali was the wealthiest person in Perugia. He owns Lumatic Vending Machines, which I think is like a coffee vending machine. Okay. And the that company, Lumatic, owned the basketball team. You can actually like Google this and this whole family. Hmm. So the company owned the basketball team and the gym in which they played and practiced in. Rudy became friends with the children uh, who, after becoming familiar with Rudy's circumstances, petitioned their father to adopt Rudy until the age of 18. So Rudy was 16 at this time when he okay. now has like a new foster family. Ileana Caporali was Rudy's uh, adopted sister for three years. She remembers him as sweet, shy boy who was afraid of the dark. She says he Aww. was affectionate, loved dogs, and tended to be absent-minded. I'm afraid of the dark. Yeah. I can't be sympathetic for this guy. I know. Still- I know. It was, it was hard doing this story, but it was... So there's like little things that get said. Yeah. So she even says here, like, he's a little absent-minded mm-hmm. sometimes. Rudy really liked living with the Caporelli. He had nice things. Everything was paid for. He had a chauffeur, chauffeur that drove him to school and practices. He was living the wow. life. Yeah. You know what that's more common over there? Having a driver? Like, a okay. lot of people have a driver. Okay. I yeah. I mean, and I was... they were the richest people in the mm-hmm. area, too. Unfortunately, Rudy would soon screw this lavish life up. The Caporalis found out that he— And I apologize if I am saying that name wrong. I'm just rolling with it. Go for um, it. <laughs> this, is, this is so yeah. long. I'm sorry. <laughs> he wasn't doing well in school, so they hired a tutor. They kept trying with him. However, the tutor soon informed the family that Rudy was not showing up. This concerned them, but they learned Rudy was often late to work or wouldn't even show bother to show up. So he was just missing out on everything. Oh, at this shit. Point. Okay. Uh, when confronted about his behavior, Rudy just lied to them. Yeah. 
so even though they were like, no, we know your tutor says you're not going, you're you're not at work. Yeah. We also see you not at work. He's just like, no, like I'm going or like this happened or that happened. They're like, you're just lying to us. So uh, Ileana, the sister, remembers thinking Rudy just didn't quite understand right from wrong. Mm-hmm. Now at 18, the Caporelli cut him off and said that he needs to find his own way because he just wasn't respecting them. Rudy moved in with his aunt Georgette, who now lived in Milan, which is about five hours away from Perugia. Got it. Uh, He was doing well in Milan. He got, along with his aunt and her new husband, he got a job at a cafe and actually showed up to work there. He started dating an Italian girl and even met Giorgio Armani while out at a nightclub. Well, that's (laughs) very fancy. He was living the life and he was pretty proud of how things were going, but then his boss got arrested for a crime, possibly drug-related, and the cafe closed, leaving him jobless. So he heads back to Perugia. And then in the spring of 2007, he hit up Mrs. Caporelli for some help, and she rented an apartment on the uh, nearby college campus. He began hanging around the students on campus. He played a lot of basketball at the Piazza Grimana Court, which was across the street from Seven Via della Pergola. Which is exactly where um, Amanda says she met Patrick. Yeah. That's, those are the basketball courts those where she says she met courts. Patrick that night when she has like the weird confession moment. Mm-hmm. That never happened, but that's she's like, I remember a basketball mm-hmm. court and Patrick's brown jacket. Mm-hmm. Now, either Rudy came up with this or the guys that he played basketball with, but they mm-hmm. called him the Baron mm. after Baron Davis, an NBA player on the Golden State Warriors team. I mentioned this just in case you mention it because the roommates will call him that no, and they'll be confused by it. They'll be like, Baron. And they'll oh, really? be like, who's that? No, I didn't have that. Yeah. Okay. Um, they, it took them a minute to realize that his name was Rudy. Like the That's why it took a little oh, a little while because they were just like, oh, there's this guy, Baron. And they're like, we don't know him, but we know this guy, Rudy. And then like pictures huh. and other things. Yeah, That's interesting. He soon befriends an American student from Seattle named Victor Al... Olienkov. Sing it. Olienikov. I have no <laughs> idea. O-L-E-I-N-I-K-O-V. Victor found him pretty strange. I also found it interesting that he's from Seattle. Another Seattle, yeah. yeah. Well, you said that was like a thing. Yeah. He found him pretty strange, but he they still hung out a lot. Victor was asked to speak on his character. He said that Rudy was a great dancer and charismatic, not creepy like the news reports stated. However, he recalls one night when Rudy wasn't allowed in the club, to which Rudy accused the bouncer of being racist, but now they're thinking like maybe it was for other reasons. Rudy would stay at um, would stay the night at Victor's apartment pretty often. His roommates didn't care too much until Rudy started doing some weird stuff in his sleep. First, there were times when his eyes would get all droopy and they couldn't tell if he was sleeping or not. Mm. Then there was a time when he was asleep, when he was sleepwalking in the middle of the night and acted like he was teaching a full-on class using a dresser as a blackboard and slipping in and out of speaking Italian and English. That's very strange. He would sometimes sleepwalk right out of the apartment and wake up like miles away. Oh, no. Um, he would even ask them to like hide his keys sometimes because he was just like, I don't know. Sometimes was he on I lose Ambien? my keys and. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Sometimes he would crawl on the floor and bark like a dog. Cool. That's a cool guy. Victor also recounts Rudy passing out on a toilet several times. This could taking be signs. Taking a shit while he's taking a shit. This could be, so this could be signs like major drug use, but Victor and others will say that Rudy wasn't even a heavy drug user, that they would like smoke a little weed, but they noticed that he would get like kind of weird with just like a little bit of it, that he would just start acting weird. 
So lucky for Victor, he, his time was almost up in Italy, and he headed back to Seattle, so I was kind of in with that. lucky for him is right. But soon after, Rudy made friends with the Italian men who lived downstairs from Amanda and Meredith. He was still going by the Baron. While at their house, Rudy met Amanda briefly and asked the guys about her after she left. At that time, she was still single. Another time soon after, that's when they were out and he met, like, Meredith and Amanda. And he was just like, oh, she's, like, cute too. Um, But nothing really came from that. The Italian guys were starting to get sick of Rudy, though. He was always coming over. He seemed to just, like, never want to sleep at his own house for, you know. Whatever um, reason. He was uh, coming in late at night after going to the club and, like, crashing at their house. So even, like, if he wasn't going out with them, he would just, like, go there. Uh, they talked about his weird sleeping habits, too, and they brought up the one time he fell asleep on their toilet, which was now filled with a bunch of shit after returning uh, so he left after, shit in their toilet too? Yeah, that he was just shit, like he clearly took a shit and just fell asleep on the toilet. Because and this they was DNA like, tested the shit in the, in the, um, in Meredith and Amanda's apartment and it was his shit. Yeah. So that's what it's, yeah. So it's <laughs> he like. He took shits this, everywhere. Yeah. Oh he man. He always has to poop. <laughs> Um, and I tried to find out more info on this, uh, but it mentions that after his arrest, these sleeping behaviors were classified as psychogenic dissociative state or fugue state yeah uh, which is a rare uh, psychiatric disorder categorized by reversible amnesia for a person for personal identity including the memories personality and other identifying characteristics of individuality the state can last for days months or longer dissociative fugues usually involves unplanned travel or wandering and is sometimes accompanied by the establishment of of a new identity. Now, like, that, that's pretty, like, I, I don't know, because I couldn't get any more information about this. I'm going Rudy into fugue also, states. Well, that's something that's in, it's been employed by other people who committed crimes and said, yeah. I just didn't know what I was doing. And it's effective. So, like, there have been people that have done that, that have just, yes. that just like, don't know what they're doing and mm-hmm. do crazy shit. Now, Rudy is... Um, we'll find out a little bit more, but there's a possible book coming out. So part of me wonders if there's like, like if he's holding, if people are holding more. Well, info he's back. out in the world now, so of course he can profit off it now. He yeah. couldn't when he mm-hmm. was in jail. Spoiler yeah. alert: he's not in jail anymore. Yeah. Okay. So about a month before Meredith's murder, Rudy started getting into some trouble. Up until now, he had pretty clean, no real trouble with the law. I think just at this point, he was getting older and he wasn't getting handouts anymore. Mm-hmm. So now he was, he had to do things on his own. And this okay. is where he started to get into a bit more trouble. On October 13th or 14th, the law offices of Paolo Brocci, another Paolo. Such Paolo's. <laughs> and Matteo Palazzioli in Perugia had been broken into. The windows were smashed with a large stone. Yeah. And a computer, a cell phone, USB keys, and a printer were missing. On October 27th, so they don't this know who right this— This is right before. Yes. Okay. This is all within that month of October. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And so now that law office was broken into, but they don't know who did it yet. Okay. Just these items are missing. On October 27th, 2007, Maria del Preto, a principal of a nursery school in Milan, found a stranger coming out of her office, Rudy— it was Rudy. <laughs> he, <Shock> calmly, <laughs> he calmly said he was— he um who he was and that he had was just drifting through and needed a place to sleep. He was told like he could stay there. She was like uh, at no. the preschool. 
Yeah. You can't stay there. No. She saw that he was rummaging through, that he had rummaged through uh, quite a bit of things, and she called the cops. I think there were some other men there that may have, like, helped her, like, keep him. Yeah. And uh, she noticed that he had a laptop, which he said was his. The police came and uh, took him in. They went through his backpack and pulled out the laptop, a cell phone, a kitchen knife from the nursery's kitchen, and some other items. They matched those electronics with the items that were stolen at the law offices in Perugia. Mm. The police only fingerprinted Rudy, and because the prosecutor said he had more important cases to deal with, they let him go and told him that he, he just should head back to Perugia. Those are the fingerprints. That would be the reason the police could match him at Meredith's house. Oh, shit. But imagine if they just sent him to prison instead. Oh, no. <gasps> yeah. But this the would never have happened. Like, I don't have time for this stupid case. Because it wasn't something that they, like, wanted to try. After recognizing Rudy in the paper, Christian Tremontano, a bartender in um, at Merlin. That was Meredith's favorite club. So, yeah, bartender at Merlin in Perugia. Uh, he went to the police about a break-in that occurred at his home on September 27th. Tremontano says he was awakened in the middle of the night by sounds of someone in his apartment. On coming downstairs, he saw a young-looking black man going through his possessions. The robber quickly grabbed a chair to fend off Tremontano, kind of like the lion tamer. Oh, no. And trying <laughs> to move, like, toward the exit. The uh, burglar pulled a jackknife on Tremontano and managed to get out the door. Tremontano reported the break-in to the police officer, this woman, Monica Napolini. I have so many hard names, too. Yeah, I, a lot of times I just say, like, the investigator or the prosecutor. Yeah, so, because you're never, these names <laughs> are not going to be something we ever talk about again. So, so uh, he calls the police officer, and she says, just come into the station to file a report. So She's the, um, the one that actually, um, I, I believe, that interviewed Raffaele all the times. Okay. And, like, she was one of the detectives on the case. Okay. So. He got to the station and the line just seemed like way too long and he had things to do. So he figured like whatever, (laughs) I wasn't her, nothing was stolen. I doubt like this guy's going to come back in here again. So he just went home. But Tremontano also said, because I think he went on the stand for this. So he also said that he was working at the bar when he saw that same guy come in to hang out. And he asked the bouncers to remove him. That could have been that same night that he went out with Victor. Um, And it wasn't until he saw the papers that he knew that his name was Rudy. Oh, So that's when he put it together. On October 31st, Rudy says he went to a Halloween party with some Spanish girls. And he had been... Oh, this is just the end of it for you guys. That's fine. On October 31st, Rudy says he went to a Halloween party with some Spanish girls. And he had been... That he had been hanging out with. It was very unclear if he met Meredith while out. He told his friends over a Skype call that he had met Meredith and they planned to see each other again. So that was that Skype call you were talking yep. about. There's um, they, they were on a call like, for We were a while. like, like hanging out. Yeah, and, and they had like out. talked about seeing each other again. Yeah, but she had a boyfriend. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, his story changes a lot. So so we don't many know. times it changes um, so many times. Okay, so the last little bit I have is um the very simplistic kind of what they know of what Rudy did on November 1st. Okay. On November 1st, the night of the murder, Rudy went to a friend's house around 11.30 p.m. and then went out to the clubs until 4.30 a.m. The evening of November 2nd, so now there's just a whole lapse. Oh, wow, that's a big gap. There's like nothing in between. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, the evening of November 2nd, Rudy went to the same nightclub with three American female students whom he had just met at the bar. Okay. And he, after that, he just leaves for Germany where he would be located and, like, found, they would find him, like, several weeks yeah, he, later. Yeah, he, that's why they did Skype him, right? Because he that's fled they, the country on, yeah. what was it, November 4th he left? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How how not guilty at all of him? Yeah. I, I gotta go. <laughs> I just gotta go to Germany. That's it. See yeah. you later. So that is Rudy. So after Rudy is brought in because his DNA is all over the body and the house— his lawyer, obviously he immediately speaks to a lawyer, asks to fast-track his trial, but just his alone. He asks mm-hmm. that he not be tried with Amanda and Raffaele and that, which, why are they still on trial? Um, and that they fast-track him. Now, this is basically something you can do. My cat is purring in this microphone. Which is basically something you can do in Italy when you, um, like, admit part, part guilt, I think. You can just, like, I guess in the United States it'd be similar to like plea deals where you're like, I'll admit to some of it if we just get this shit over with. So now he's changed his story. He goes on the stand and he says that he went there that night and Amanda and Raffaele were there and that he got involved in a sexual game with Amanda, Raffaele, and Meredith. Meredith is an unwilling participant in this game because Amanda... Wants to, like, show her if she thinks she's so classy. I don't know why that's a thing, but that's what they say. And so Amanda forces them to rape her, to rape Meredith. And then Amanda takes the knife and kills her. Now this is his story. His first story was, Amanda was not there. You guys are wrong. Right. But now he's seen a lawyer. And now he changes his tune. Amanda finds this out, of course, immediately and is totally devastated because that is absolutely not what happened. But this guy's, his, what he's saying works because it's really a ploy to the narrative that the entire country has now embraced, basically. Because the stories of Amanda Knox, Foxy Noxy being this like crazy, wild, slutty femme fatale are super popular. They're all over every news show, all over every tabloid, in every magazine. And, like, people are invested. This is like like their O.J. Simpson trial. They're in it. Everyone's watching it. They all want to know what's happening. And so the press pays no attention to Rudy because he's not interesting. They're like, you're a cog in this wheel, but whatever. We really want to hear the Amanda Knox story. So the judge decides to sentence Rudy to 30 years because he— he obviously did this. He was in jail. He was a part of it. And then they commute it to 16 years in his appeal, even though he was guilty. And then, um, as we'll mention later, as of, I think, just a few months ago, he was released from prison. Yeah. So he ends up serving, I believe, nine years for this crime. So wild. That he for sure committed yeah. because there's evidence that he did it. They also found, later they'll tell you that they found the hand. Remember when I said they walked in and there was a handprint on the wall in blood, like a big smear? That's yeah. his handprint. It's his handprint in Meredith's blood they find on the wall. They only really, like, this guy links to the whole crime. Amanda and Raffaele don't really, but they are only focused on them. Because now they have to be right. They're assholes if they're not. They're a laughingstock. So, after Rudy is sentenced... Everyone goes with this drug-fueled sex game storyline 
because now that's the good, interesting thing. And so Amanda is now going into court as part of her trial. That's starting to happen. Um, and of course, she at this point, she has lawyers and everything, obviously. And every time she's in court, the media rips her to shreds. When she's just, they get like, you know, the videos of just her walking into court. They always are talking about like, what does her hair look like? What does her clothes look like? And when she sees, like the first time she walks into the courtroom, she sees her mother, her father, her three sisters, and her Aunt Dolly standing there, and she smiles. She's like, right. you know, and she like waves at them, and they're like, look at her, smiling after murder. She's a fucking guilty murderer. She's just smiling and laughing at people because she's a psychopath. No, she was just locked up for like a year and is seeing her whole entire family standing there, and she's overcome with emotion. I would too. Yeah, absolutely. Wouldn't you wave at like your mom and dad, and like everybody's there, you see them supporting you, you're going to be like, oh, my people are here. Yeah. So her trial obviously takes a number of weeks and days. And something really terrible also is that in Italy, um, everything takes summer vacation, even court. I'm not I kidding. Love Europe. Yeah. <laughs> so they get to like a certain point in her case, and then they're like, well, it's June. We'll be Fiesta. back in September. Yeah. And they just take two months off. Yeah. So it takes incredibly long for this to happen. So now we have the prosecution leaning really hard on this like weird sex game narrative. She talks a lot about how baseless he does, sorry, about how baseless Amanda was and how classy Meredith was. He calls her Mez the whole time, like he knows her. So they the trial goes all the way through. And oh, and there's one point where Amanda comes in and she's wearing a t-shirt that says all you need is love, because like yeah. her aunt gave it to her. And their immediate the, the press immediately jumps on that and is like, she's so fucking casual. You think you wear jeans and a t-shirt to court? Mm-hmm. That was the other thing that I couldn't remember what I was trying to think of. So, like, that's just the atmosphere that she's in. So even though evidence is, is pretty much in her favor, mm-hmm. and they actually say, like, we'd like another inquest into the DNA evidence. How did you find Amanda's DNA? Where did you find Raffaele's? What is this? And the judge says, no, you don't need to do that. I can't believe Yeah, the that. judge just says, nope, that's not necessary. Then they take summer vacation, and then they come back, and they sentence Amanda to 25 years. They find her guilty, and they sentence her for 25 years. And the crowds cheer and erupt as she leaves, collapsing. I believe Raffaele was given 26 years. I don't right. know why he was given the additional year, but... Maybe because he was part of the act. Maybe, but like, she's supposedly the one who killed her. Oh, right, According right. to their narrative, Amanda That's did right. the killing. Um, and then in, in, the, in Amanda's book, they mention that this is a very strange sentence in Italy. Because in Italy, your sentence is usually life or, sh- like, much shorter like how Rudy ended up with like 16 years, 25 is like, or, or like 30 years. It's like a very arbitrary number. Mm-hmm. They say it's almost like they knew they couldn't give her life because she didn't really deserve it. Right. So like she gets this very strange sentence. And then after this happens, Prosecutor Mignini walks around shaking hands and kiss, kissing babies. He just talks about how like, he's like, I saw the crime of the century. I found that knife. I found the DNA. I've connected all the dots. I'm a fucking national treasure and a hero. Talks about how people wanted to shake his hand, about he was like, how just, just he's the top of the universe. So of course Amanda and Raffaele appeal. Of course they appeal. And it takes for fucking ever to um, to get the appeal through because, you know, you got to take summer vacation. <laughs> and and in the meantime, what they don't tell you in anything, any of the doc, like, this is not in anywhere. Raffaele spends six months in solitary confinement. Yeah. It's like a footnote in the documentary and it's not mentioned anywhere else. Six months 
in solitary confinement, as we discussed in our um, Eastern State episode, is enough to cause lasting mental trauma mm. on a person. Lasting. So at this point in time, like, he hasn't been able to speak to Amanda at all. But I guess at, at this point, they are able to, like, communicate through letters. They can yeah. send letters to one another because they're both in a different prison. And he sends her flowers on her birthday. Yeah. White lilies. Mm-hmm. And she goes down to get them, and the guards are like, you can't fucking have these. And they throw them out. <gasps> they did? Yeah, she couldn't have them. They wouldn't let her have them. She could. She got to, like, look at them, and then she had to walk away. She couldn't have them in her cell with her. Because, um, like, he could have put anything in these. They're from a florist! <laughs> right. But then she writes back to him and tells him, like, I'm not romantically interested in you anymore. Mm-hmm. And when he talks about this, it is the saddest thing in it the world. It is the saddest thing. It's like, I was in love with her, and she doesn't love me anymore. They and just I'm, had two very different experiences they did. in there. And he's like, I'm here to defend her honor. And she does, though, to be fair, in her book, when she talks about Raffaele the whole time, she talks about, she's like, he protected me. The one mm-hmm. person that was there for me through this whole thing, top to bottom, nonstop, was him. He never for one minute faltered. He never for one minute, like, wanted to hurt me. I know his confession was coerced. He's been like the he's the the best of all men. Right. So she does she does say really kind things about him, but his heart was super broken because she didn't want to be with him anymore. I know. She was um in another interview, she talked about like her experience uh, upon like entering the prison. Yeah, that's she in said the book it, too. Yeah, it was just a lot of like like it was like male doctors giving yeah, her all gyno the exams were, and yeah. like getting like deepened. She said they took pictures of the inside of her vagina yep. and like that's in her book it was, too. Yeah, so and she just she was just feeling she like didn't even like to be touched anymore. Well, there was also so, a guard that sexually harassed her the whole time she was yeah, there mm-hmm. that would say things like, "You're gonna have sex with me because you're a slut, so you can have sex with me, right?" Yeah. And she, like, was afraid to report him for a long time. She Mm -hmm. told her mother. And, of course, that's, like, documented everywhere. And then she Mm -hmm. eventually tried to tell somebody and just just nothing happened. Like, her one confidant while she was in— Confidant? While she was in prison was, like, the chaplain, the guy that ran. Yeah. The— who was, like, the religious consultant guy. He was a priest. And she used to see him, like, all the time. She'd go sit in his office. And he was, like, a man that sat there and didn't try to force religion on her. But really said, like, I believe you are good. And then eventually he said he believes that she was innocent. Mm. And um he'll I'll get back to him in the very end. But he's he was like a really key figure oh, in good. keeping her yeah. sane. He was her friend and the person who like when she eventually leaves prison, which we'll get to in a minute, he he says, like, I think of you like my granddaughter. Aww. So yeah, he really formed this she had she had someone, thank God, because her roommates were rough. Yes. <laughs> Woo! So she, which I could talk about her whole prison experience, and that, but read her book. Just read her book. Then yeah. you can hear all about all the crazy roommates that she had. She did have one American roommate, though, who she still writes to and was very nice and good and advised her really well and, like, kind of taught her how to be tough and not be too nice to people. So she was, she got released while Amanda was still in prison, and she, like, still wrote to her and, and like, advised her oh, nice. on what to do. Yeah, so she was great. So then the appeal comes around. And she gets to court for the appeal. And the first thing that's said about her in the media is the press says, she looks a little skinny. Maybe she needs hair and makeup. Of course. Yeah. I'm sorry, what? That's what they focus on is like her appearance. And she says in her book that she details like, I knew I couldn't smile when I saw my family. I knew I couldn't look like I had had any joy in my life. I knew I had to just be like dazed and focused. 
And, like, she makes a couple statements during the, the course of her, like, courtroom time. And the first one, she, like, is very stalwart and and knows what she wants to say, but, like, halfway through just can't handle the pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one, she cries through, which, like, wouldn't we all? Yeah. But, of course, like, they leap on that as, like, look how unstable she is. She can't even make it through her statement. But, like, now they're getting the response they want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So during her appeal, they have a different judge, which is good. Mm-hmm. And an Italian appeal doesn't go the same way as an American appeal. When you appeal in Italy, you're not supposed to review the same evidence. You're supposed to bring in new stuff. Okay. So what they, her argue, her lawyer's argument was, okay, well, then we need another forensic scientist to come in because our whole platform is that, like, you botched this investigation. You didn't investigate this properly. And the judge grants them that. Okay. So now they get actual forensic science coming on. And the first thing they say is, well, you did all of this wrong because you contaminated every single scene. There's video of people examining all the evidence in the house, and they're touching everything one after the next, which you can't do. You have to change gloves in between touching things, and they absolutely don't do it. You can also see that their gloves are, like, kind of dirty. You can see that they're, like, a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, and you watch them pick, pick up the bra clasp after they have touched other things. You see it happen on film. You see them, like, fumbling with it and everything. And like passing it to each other? I know. Everyone touches it. And they're like, well, you can't do that. And so they have a real scientist that says, okay, yes, Raffaele's DNA was on this bra clasp, but, you know, like, it was in the apartment, too. And they say, well, how can you possibly explain how Meredith's DNA was on this knife? Um, and Amanda's. Like, well, first of all, Amanda was in the apartment. And second of all, they find that the DNA evidence um, that's Meredith's on that knife was too small to be admissible. The The profile mm-hmm. of it could have been like something like a million other people in Italy. It wasn't definitely Meredith. Okay. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing. Yeah. I remember. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. DNA is like it's one in this many. But this was like it could have been quite a lot of people. Yeah. She just happened to fall within that profile. And also, the knife had been in the same place where her body had been. Right. So there's possible cross-contamination there, like in the in the medical examiner's office because it's evidence. Oh, right, right. So it had been in places where her body had been and where her, mm-hmm. uh, her DNA had been. So there's a chance that it just blew onto it. But it was so very infinitesimal that they were like, her DNA is not on this knife. What are you talking about? Um, and the this forensic scientist says, quote, you cannot determine DNA however you want. So she's like, if Raffaele's DNA is on this bra clasp, you can't lean into that and say that means he definitely touched it. It only means that this article came into contact with something that he came into contact with. Because hmm. the because the, Menini was like, no, his DNA, DNA is on the bra. He took off her bra. She's like, that's not what that means. It does not mean that he did that. It means that something came into contact, possibly. So I really liked that quotation. Yeah. So then at this point, the media is like starting to turn. They're like, oh, shit. And the American media has gotten hold of this. So there's, there's also like a quote of Anderson Cooper saying, if the DNA evidence is incredible, how did it get to this point? Right. They're like, well, they lied a lot and they pushed it forward. So then all the reporters are getting a hold of this. And this is really interesting to me because instead of, like, they start to get the real information, right? The forensics are there. Amanda's DNA is not where they say it was. Raffaele's DNA is not where they say it was. Um, Rudy's DNA is fucking everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the reporters, instead of being upset that they completely character assassinated Amanda, 
they're just happy there's more news. They're like, oh, well, there's a twist in this story, so we can keep talking about it. God. It it boggles my mind that they don't have any, like, their empathy switch doesn't turn on and go, oh, my God, I ruined someone's life. No. No, it didn't. They made her out to be a guilty sex creep when actually there was no evidence whatsoever that she did that. And instead of being angry or guilt-ridden, they just reported these lies. And they're simply happy that the case has taken a turn and they have more headlines again. One of the reporters said he didn't feel guilty for releasing Amanda's prison diaries and splashing it all around and shoehorning in their inferences of what happened, like, oh, here's evidence, and it means this. He said he didn't feel guilty for that at all because it was the legal system's fault. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that there's a lot of blame sharing there. Right. Because they also chose to interpret things even further than the legal system did. Yeah. And then they created an angry, pitchfork-wielding mob. They were they were horrible. They were definitely a part of this. Oh, 100%. But they really, like, this guy is so slick that he very much is like, well, we didn't do anything. It was all the legal system. We just mm-hmm. report what we're given. And then what I found double interesting was that someone said to him, he said, he goes like, well, what are we supposed to do? Check every fact we get? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to check every fact you get. I'm like a nothing podcaster, and I check every fact I get. So do you. Yeah. Well, from what I can understand, because a lot of this is that that Nick. Yeah. Nick P. I wish I could I know, I didn't write down his name. name. Um, but he, I believe, was a, he is a journalist, but mm-hmm. I believe he did a lot of writing for kind of tabloidy type yeah. of things. And he even mentions that in the documentary. I think he did, like, the Daily Mail in the UK, yeah. things like that. And so mirror he just happened to be the reporter, the journalist that they picked up because he could translate everything very easily. Mm-hmm. And in he just he was the one on scene that day, that time, that could do a lot of the translation. So a lot of the papers went with his stories. So he kind of had a background in tabloidy things, wow. and then it just exploded from there. Yeah. Yeah, and he says in the documentary, like, well, if I didn't report immediately, someone else would have gotten that headline, mm-hmm. and then my job isn't what it is, you know? He wanted to be the guy that got all the breaking news, and he was the guy that got all the breaking news. But at what cost? Right. Is what I, 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 it, just, it blows my mind that you can't— no part of his mind was like, I, I have to stop ruining this woman's life. She could go to jail forever, and I'm playing a part in it. Right. But he really, truly seems to think he didn't play a part in it. But I think he, yeah, I think he puts more fault on the police investigation. And that- I think it's it's even, Stephen, to be honest with you, because a lot of people call this a trial by media mm-hmm. because the media played such a, a heavy hand in it and because the prosecution was so fanciful and that that all kind of, like, lent mm-hmm. lent itself into everything. And I really think that's true. Right. I really they think- say that Rudy, while in prison, somebody kept getting him the media, like the information from the newspaper. So mm-hmm. a lot of times his his story, too, would also change Yeah, about, like, his confessions. Even before, like, when they were still questioning mm-hmm. him, he was getting some information, which is why it turned into, like, a sex game. Well, and- yeah, first he was just there, and then he just saw— a man, and then he saw Amanda, and then he saw Amanda and Raffaele, and then he saw them doing something, and then he was involved in it. There mm-hmm. were steps to that confession. Yeah. And and Amanda says something really interesting. At, at this point in the appeal, what her thoughts were was, the evidence is right in front of you, but instead of looking at the evidence, you're looking in my eyes. My eyes are not objective evidence. 
Mm-hmm. So they truly just were trying to see how she reacted to things and ignoring the things. Right. Which is, to me, the craziest thing I've ever heard. They're like, you're wincing. And like, yeah, but you're you're showing her things. The Another thing that like, oh, there's so many things that it's hard to involve linearly in this story is that she goes on to say that the first time she saw Meredith's dead body was when her lawyers showed her the pictures of the autopsy to prep her for trial because she was in the courtroom when they showed the pictures. And when her lawyers showed her the pictures, she like lost it. She was like sobbing and and hyperventilating and had to be escorted from the room. And the police that were outside of the room, like when they brought her out, they were like, why are you crying? And she's like, because they just showed me my friend's dead body. And they go, you've already seen that. And she said, no, I haven't. And they said, well, then you must have saw it when you killed her. (gasps) Yeah, she like couldn't look at it in court either because their friend's like mutilated dead body. Right. And everyone just thought, well, she she walked in the room and saw it. But she had never, as we mentioned earlier, she had never seen it. She didn't see anything. So when they showed her these pictures, that's the first time. And it's traumatic. Yeah. There's just so, there's just so much nonsense like that. Um, and there's a ton of evidence then presented in the appeal that Amanda and Raphael are, Raphael are innocent. But the prosecution, instead of admitting this, doubled right the fuck down. They just kept going over their same story, and they kept saying they were the ones that were representing justice for Meredith and that Amanda was diabolical. They presented her as the evil fox, I think, which is the Italian translation of like what they called her. And then there were people in the media that started to try and make her um, performing a satanic ritual. This is a fun diversion. Yeah, wow. Yeah, they said that she was like trying to sacrifice her to the devil or something. And the worst part of that is Amanda was sentenced to a year added on to her prison case for slander against the prosecution (gasps) for saying that Detective Rita Ficara hit her during her interrogation because she slapped her in the back of the head a couple times. She was like, remember Amanda, and then she would slap her. Oh. Mm -hmm. And it happened twice. And Amanda said that, and she said, well, that never happened, and now I'm going to charge you for slander. And they convicted Amanda for slander. Dear Lord. Yeah. Oh, man. So after all the forensics come in during this appeal trial, it is very, very clear that what they have is a burglary and a rape gone wrong. They also brought in two men who were in prison with Rudy. And these men say that at two separate times, Rudy was talking to them. And he told them what actually happened. And he said to these guys that he went to Meredith's house with a friend and wanted to fool around with Meredith. And they both ended up trying to pressure her into having sex. At one point, he took a break to go take shit because you got to put that in the story. It's there. He came out and his friend was trying to restrain her and rape her. And the friend was like, well, come on. And Rudy was like, okay. And so they took turns restraining her and raping her, and then they killed her so that she wouldn't say anything. And these are two men that he was in prison with say this. Now, you and I both think it was probably Rudy alone, but still, the rape and then murder to cover up what she was saying sounds a lot more evident. And then they say that he went into the bedroom and broke the window as like a cover story, so it looked like a burglary. Mm. Because the window was um, broken from the the inside out. It wasn't broken like they threw a rock okay. onto the bed. The glass went the other way. 
and then the rock was done. Right. I guess he brought the rock back in or something. But they said there was something like hinky about it where it wasn't done in a way that it would look like a, that a real break-in would happen. Yeah. Super bizarre. It's just so much. I know. It's horrible. Also, if there was – the only reason I don't think that there was a third person is mm-hmm. because, I mean, Rudy's DNA is all over that room. Everywhere. Like, there's no – there is a third-party DNA. There is? Yes. But is there as much, though? No. Like, I would think that there would have been a lot in, like, even no. semen and other things. Like no, that. it's just Rudy's. They say they yeah. found some, like, third-party DNA evidence that's really vague, and they haven't been able to match it with anything. But also, like, that like, was a flat— did they ever ask the boy downstairs to, like, send in his DNA? I don't think so. So, like, I mean, she had a somewhat boyfriend, yeah. you know? Could also, been- like, this was a place where a ton of people were walking through all the time. Mm-hmm. It was like a college dorm. And How the many day people of, were in your dorm I mean, Philomena had, there were several people walking through. Like, yeah. her friends walked yeah. through that room. Exactly. So it could have been anyone. Mm-hmm. But the prosecution, as I mentioned, doubles down. Then the guy creates this, like, animation, which he then animates Amanda and Raffaele and Rudy and Meredith, and he shows what he thinks happened. So Amanda has to watch herself telling her boyfriend and this guy to rape her roommate and then watches herself killing her roommate in animation form. That is so much influencing the jury. Like, I, don't, I can't understand why that was allowed. Right. But that happened. So the appeal then has to have summer vacation. <laughs> so Amanda has like six weeks where she has to just wait. Yeah. And when they come back, this new judge acquits them. Great. Thank fucking God. But Italy is furious. Mm-hmm. She leaves to Italians like Game of Thrones shouting shame, shame, shame at her as she, walk away, as she walks away. It's crazy. In her book, she talks about how they then take her like into this car and they're driving her away. Like they take her to prison. Oh my God, this part made me cry. They take her to prison and she like says goodbye to the few people that has shown her kindness. And she remembers that her one of her roommates before she left for the first trial was like, if you get to get out, the one thing you have to do, like there's all these little like superstitions. Like you, when you leave, you have to break your toothbrush because that's your link to prison. And you have to give your bed sheets to your roommate. And you have to, when you're walking out, you have to scuff your right foot on the ground in a line so that the next prisoner to come in is freed. Mm. So she talks about walking out of, like, giving away her bed sheets and walking out of prison and scuffing the ground with her right foot. And then they, like, spirit her away in this car, which her mother and stepfather then are, like, in their car behind them, following them. And they pull over somewhere, and her mother gets in the car and sits with her. And then they are, like, kept in a safe house for the night because they couldn't even stay at a hotel. It was right. so crazy. Uh, and then she's taken home. Yeah. Finally. And, of course, the prosecution is— Still slandering her away. So in the documentary, they then come back and talk to the man who defended Rudy. And they ask him, do you think you were a good lawyer? Do you remember this part? Yeah. And this really struck me. And he said, first he gets mad. And he goes, ask anybody else. What did they think? It's like, who, who went through the legal system real fast and is now out of jail? Then he says, quote, Any man is liable to make one mistake. Only a fool perseveres in the error. And that's Cyrano, which I thought was a very interesting thing for him to say. Yeah. Because it applies directly to the prosecution in that case. 
And I suppose we could then think that he made his one mistake quick and dirty and then got out. Oh, I hate that. I do too. But I thought the quotation was very meaningful in this. So then, thankfully, Amanda gets taken home and the press is all over her all the time. Uh, there's a very interesting press moment with her father where they're like, are you going to tell her story? So like, are you going to tell her story right now? Does she written a book? Is she going to do interviews? What's going on? Like, you have to realize that if you wait, she's not going to be as hot of a property. And her father says, I'm not looking at her as a hot property. Yeah. And then their daughter and... <laughs> yeah, that's her life. Yeah. So then, this is not over. Right. Six years later, the prosecution has made their, like, reappeal or something. And Amanda doesn't even go to this. She stays in the United States, of course. Yeah. And she's found guilty again. They find her and Raffaele guilty again. So her lawyers in Italy then go back and appeal again. And in that final appeal, they are completely exonerated. Great. And that is it. And, oh God, they show like the phone call between yeah, Amanda and Raffaele. So and she's like, we're free, we're free. Oh, that's when I cried again. And that's it. Like they can't, they can't bring the case back. It's done now, um, thankfully. One of the saddest takeaways that I... Um, that is that happens in the end of this is that uh, Meredith's family still really believes that Amanda killed her. Yeah. I feel, so I was trying to look this up now. I don't know if you got any more information, but I do feel like they are just, they're just kind of confused. They're like, very confused. They just, mm -hmm. they aren't sure. And I think they've even said about Amanda, like if she's not, you know, it's just that that's what we're going on. That's what they said. But they're saying that, she, that she's not, Raffaele isn't. So maybe they aren't, but like, then who is? Is it just Rudy? Is there I mean, somebody, is or is Rudy. now they're right? Like they're, but then is is there just a random person walking around? Like mm -hmm. we've convicted these other people, and now we've almost—is there another murderer that's out there? And I think their other position is that they're like, well, the police said this, and we trust the police, of course. So. And and they were courted by the prosecution the whole time. Like, they were, like, treating them mm -hmm. like gold. I mean, Amanda, they would be like, look at the elegance that is the Kircher family. Look at them proceeding and not saying a word. And look at Amanda's filthy, disgusting American family talking to the press. Right. That's how everything was presented. And so, like, of course, they were treated well by these people. And they're grieving their daughter. And mm -hmm. these people are telling them, we know who killed your daughter. We want to send them to prison. This is what they did. We're going to get them for you. So, of course, you're going to be like, well, yeah, okay. Nice person who is who's taking care of me. Get them for me. Mm -hmm. You're going to believe them. Right. And I think that's one of the greatest miscarriages of justice. And one of the saddest things that happened is that they convinced these poor people that that's what happened. It's awful. The Supreme Court said that they blamed a stunning flaw in evidence in the investigation and increased media attention for creating a frantic search for guilty parties. Complete lack of biological evidence for Amanda and Raffaele is what exonerated them. And this is what we call a witch hunt. Yeah. At the end of the day, police, prosecution, and the media did this to them all hand in hand. This was not one person's fault. And then at the end of the documentary, they talked to Prosecutor Mignini, and he says that if, if Amanda and Raffaele are innocent, he hopes that they will just forget about the whole thing and put their suffering behind them. That's nice. But if they are guilty, like he knows they are because they're very guilty, he knows that one day God will judge them. 
Yeah. All right, fine. Leave it up to God then. I just thought that it was very interesting that he immediately was like, um, if I was wrong, everything's fine, but you're wrong, so you're going to burn in the fires of hell for a million years. Of course. But don't don't think about the thing where I did something wrong. He says he still believes he's good and he didn't do anything wrong. And then after the trial, he was promoted to general prosecutor. What? Mm-hmm. He's the general prosecutor in Perugia. Still. God fucking help them. Wow. Yep. I'm going to leave, before we get into just a little discussion, I'm going to leave my information at this. And it's a quotation from Amanda. She said, quote, people love monsters. So when they get the chance, they want to see them. Yeah. And that's what this is. Um, Another really fun fact about Prosecutor Menini is that this is not his first time doing this. Oh, tell me. No, no. Um, There was another case that I want to cover because I read about it and it's very interesting. So I don't want to get into all of it. It's a case called the Monster of Florence. And it was actually ended up being tried in Perugia. And of course, that means that Menini was the prosecutor because that's what he does. And this is before Amanda's trial. I think it's much before it. And he brought in like a bunch of people and claimed that they were responsible for these. There was like a bunch bunch of murders in the Florence area. And they were not just murders. They were like mutilating, horrible murders. And he claimed that all these people were um, Satanists. They were like committing like satanic acts. And so he like paraded them all in and was trying to be like, confess, you've done this. Like the same thing they did to Amanda, he did to these people. And he got sentenced to 16 months in jail for abuse of power. Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't think he served it. I think he ended up just getting, um, what's it called? Probation. He okay. was just not, he didn't end up actually going to jail, but he was sentenced and then it was commuted to probation. Okay. So they know he does this stuff. It's, he's known for it, for lying and making stories and corroborating evidence and trying to weave together a pattern that makes him the big hero. Wow. Yeah. So he's going to come back in another case that we talk about because I, I do absolutely want to talk about this. This happened in 1985 is when they were bringing the people in, which is right in the middle of satanic panic. Um, so that really fits fits within it. So yeah, that guy's a treat. And he's walking the earth and still trying cases. Ugh. Yeah. That's nuts. I think the whole thing is Yeah. So much. I'm I'm so sad for all of them. Mm-hmm. And and all things told, Amanda and Raffaele spent four years in prison. Yeah. I mean, I know it seems like they went in and then they got let out. No, they were in there for a long time. A Their long trials were very protracted. Time. Yeah. Six months of which Raffaele spent in solitary confinement. They mm-hmm. were both abused by the system and by officers. And Amanda was humiliated countless times forever. There are still p- people, if you Google her name, there are still tons of people, even in the United States, that really think she is a rapist and murderer. Right. And every single one of them are the people that didn't look into her case afterwards. Of course. They have no idea about the evidence that... And she's gone on to do some really um, remarkable work. Something that the documentary doesn't talk about is that when Amanda was preparing for her appeal, one of her friends came and they she moved. I believe her name is Madison. She, But I, I don't know if that's one of the names that was changed because I think some of them were like anonymity-wise. Mm-hmm. She moved to Perugia yeah. to help Amanda with her case. Yeah. She contacted a man named Saul Kaysen, who has gone on to discover the techniques with which you can provoke a false confession. Okay. 
So he is also what they call the godfather of the Innocence Project. The Innocence Project is something that has been set up to get people out of jail that haven't committed crimes. Right. So they fight for people just like Amanda. And so they they actually contacted him and he consulted on her case. Great. And helped her out. He has also gone up against something called the Reed Technique in interrogation, which is what the detectives in Perugia followed. And then this is an accusatory process in which the investigator will tell the suspect that the results of the investigation clearly indicate that they did commit the crime in question, which they did this to both Amanda and Raffaele. The Reed Technique um, user's goal is to make the suspect gradually more comfortable with telling the truth. Um, And Saul Kaysen explained that false confessions are not rare. More than a quarter of the 365 people exonerated in recent decades by the nonprofit Innocence Project had confessed to their alleged crimes. It's not hard to get somebody to confess to a crime under these specific circumstances. They also had told Amanda, and I don't know if they told Raffaele the same thing, that they were going to put her in jail for 30 years if she didn't, like, tell them what happened. They said, like, they threatened her with a lot of things. Drawing on more than 30 years of research, Kaysen told the legal team how standard interrogation techniques combine psychological pressure and escape hatches that can easily cause an innocent person to confess. So basically, they just trap you into saying things. There's, he, he's like someone to look up. Amanda works with the Innocence Project a lot now. She speaks out a lot. She has her own podcast. Yep. It's called Labyrinth, I think. Uh, yeah, I think that's one of them. She's a and then she has a, True, the truth about true crime. Okay, Amanda Knox. So it's just her on that one. Nice. I think the labyrinth. She has like a things with her husband. Yeah, because mm-hmm. she's married now. Yes, she's doing good. Mm-hmm. She's like a nice little husband, and she's done tons of interviews with the media. If you guys want to see her speak, it's very easy to do so. You can follow her on social media. You can read. Please read her book. Her book is so good. You, mm-hmm. you should read her book. Yeah. Oh, so I wanted to bring up Rudy. Okay. Um. So he was supposed to spend at least 26 years in prison. Yeah, he was sentenced to 30 initially, I think. Yeah, and then um, he only had to spend 16 years, which is nuts. Well, they commuted his sentence. They Oh, that's right. They That's right. But So he was supposed to get out in 2022, but he, I think, just got out. And I'm he trying did. to find this news He's article. He's a good boy. But anyway, in 2017... He was um, he was able to have partial release oh in order God. to attend school and has been working at a library in central Italy and as a volunteer for Catholic charity. So part of his current release now is that yeah. he continues to work. He has to do community service. Yeah. So he has to continue to work at that Catholic charity. And he also um, is continuing his schooling that has to do with, like, the criminal justice system, which is oh, ring-a-ding fucking ding. But I just, like, good for you. I don't why know why Why are you getting they, that chance? I don't, yeah. I don't understand. I mean, he clearly killed her. Yeah. So and the court of law he, convicted him of that crime. Right. They said, we recognize that you have raped and murdered a young girl. Yeah. So now the only person that they can prove killed her— Yep. Is out. Mer- Meredith, who we don't really get to hear too much of either. Nope. Like, and I'd that, love to know. I wish that we could have spent more time on her. Like, I had more info on Rudy than on Meredith. Yeah, I, I tried to in the beginning. You did. Um, and, and it was it was great. I mean, I got a better picture of her than yeah. I had. You can read her father's book. It's going to be very different oh, than the opinions right. we've yeah. had here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's the one thing that her family has said, too, is that they're really heartbroken because if you look, look up her case— 
all you see is Amanda Knox. That's the only mm-hmm. thing you see is, is Amanda's name. You don't see her name nearly anywhere. Most people don't even know her name. Right. They know that Amanda Knox was like was wrongfully convicted of killing her mm-hmm. roommate. That's what they know. They So the Netflix documentary, if you listen to the podcast episode on it, the director said that he the what he wanted to do was get um, the firsthand accounts from the people that were there, the main people. That was his whole thing. He wanted mm-hmm. to interview the main people. Yeah. And so they went down the list of everybody and the people that are on that mm-hmm. on the documentary are the ones that agreed to it. And there were certain ones that were very important to them. And one and the one family was the Kutcher family. Kircher. Kur- sorry, Kircher family. And they did didn't deny the request. So he was it, it was unfortunate they did get a little clip for the movie. His mom but or her mom, sorry, yeah. Nan says something. So just they, like, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Like so he all. thought that was really important to include. Yeah. Um, but he was upset that they couldn't get their side because he really wanted that in there. I don't think they wanted to be involved with anything about Amanda because they they well, seriously the think she well, killed right, their daughter. But their their his idea for the movie was to get like to Tell be me, very well rounded. Mm-hmm. We want we want your point of view of what happened. Yeah, and I'm doing this based on the media in the way that it turned into was a little yeah. bit different. But yeah, but it's because of the people that he didn't get to have for the interview. So I just thought that was interesting. That is interesting. You see, like the prosecutor talks and the press, the reporter talks, Amanda talks, Raffaele talks, and you see. Not many other people. Like, their roommates don't come in and comment. I think their lawyers talk at one point. Um, Rudy's lawyer talks. Mm -hmm. Rudy doesn't. And he could have probably from prison, but he didn't. They, uh, something happened there. They got him and they were in correspondence and then they ended it. And even in here he said, he was like, I feel like there's going to be a book or something. But well, he couldn't write it while he's in jail. Well, I don't know if Italy's laws are the same as the United States. But in the United States, while you're in prison, you cannot... Mm-hmm. Or if you're convicted of a crime, I think even you can correct me if I'm wrong. You cannot profit off telling that story, especially while you're in jail. You can't you can't sell your story, right? Which is probably so now he can is yeah. out. Yeah, and that was uh, yeah, that's what they talked about that he was getting out soon. So mm-hmm. yeah, he got out for being a good boy. Mm-hmm. But so yeah. nuts. Toast. Toast. Well, to to Amanda and Raffaele, mm-hmm. obviously, into Meredith. And for sure to Meredith, Lord, this one is very bleak. Yeah. None of them deserved what they got, except for Rudy. He deserved more than he got. Do we have anybody else to toast to this week? We do. Tell me about them. Um, so a recap from last week. <laughs> Revisiting. <laughs> yeah, so if you listened last week, which you should have, um, we had a new patron, uh, Nathi. Oh my gosh, I'm going to say it wrong again. No! <laughs> We're going to do it again. Nathifa. Nathifa. Yeah. yeah. That's um, her name. Not and, however we pronounced yeah. it. And she told me she's not a great chess player, but she does um she can hold the hold the note in karaoke. So Way to go, girl. We love yeah. you. So we'll go to karaoke soon. <laughs> One day <laughs> we'll when karaoke that. is allowed again. And we do have a new patron. Woo-woo! Emily Garber. Emily Garber, we love you. Yes. You're Maybe a- she's good at chess. Are you good at chess? Tell Please us. tell us. Are you in our Facebook group? Can we talk? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought I was going to say, I think I know that name. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Well, this is a lot. And um, as of now, you will notice that this is two parts in one week because we um, we did it all in one night and it's real, real long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
So this week you get two. Congrats. Oh my gosh, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And if we trusted that the good guys were good and justice was just, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. People love monsters, so when they get the chance, they want to see them.